Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash Support for more information. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tonight, I continue the story of little women. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 8 Joe meets Apollyon. Girls, where are you going? asked Amy, coming into their room one Saturday afternoon and finding them getting ready to go out with an air of secrecy which excited her curiosity. Never mind, little girls shouldn't ask questions, returned Joe sharply. Now, if there is anything mortifying to our feelings when we are young, 
it is to be told that, and to be bidden to run away, dear, is still more trying to us. Amy bridled up at this insult, and determined to find out the secret if she teased for an hour. Turning to Meg, who never refused her anything very long, she said coaxingly, Do tell me. I should think you might let me go too, for Beth is fussing over her piano, and I haven't got anything to do. I'm so lonely. I can't, dear, because you're not invited, began Meg, but Joe broke in impatiently. Now, Meg, be quiet or you will spoil it all. You can't go, Amy, so don't be a baby and whine about it. You're going somewhere with Laurie, I know you are. You were whispering and laughing together on the sofa last night, and you stopped when I came in. Aren't you going with him? Yes, we are. Now, do be still and stop bothering. Amy held her tongue, but used her eyes and saw Meg slip a fan into her pocket. I know, I know. You're going to the theatre to see the Seven Castles, she cried, adding resolutely. And I shall go, for Mother said I might see it. And I've got my rag money. And it was mean not to tell me in time. Just listen to me a minute and be a good child, said Meg soothingly. Mother doesn't wish you to go this week because your eyes are not well enough yet to bear the light of this fairy piece. Next week, you can go with Beth and Hannah and have a nice time. I don't like that half as well as going with you and Laurie. Please let me. I've been sick with this cold so long and shut up. I'm dying for some fun. Do, Meg. I'll be ever so good, pleaded Amy, looking as pathetic as she could. Suppose we take her... I don't believe Mother would mind if we bundle her up well, began Meg. If she goes, I shan't, and if I don't, Laurie won't like it, and it would be very rude after he invited only us to go and drag in Amy. I should think she'd hate to poke herself where she isn't wanted, said Joe crossly, for she disliked the trouble of overseeing a fidgety child when she wanted to enjoy herself. Her tone and manner angered Amy, who began to put her boots on, saying, in her most aggravating way, I shall go. Meg says I may, and if I pay for myself, Laurie hasn't anything to do with it. You can't sit with us, for our seats are reserved, and you mustn't sit alone, so Laurie will give you his place, and that will spoil our pleasure. Or he'll get another seat for you, and that isn't proper when you weren't asked. You shan't stir a step, so you may just stay here where you are, scolded Joe, crosser than ever, having just pricked her finger in her hurry. Sitting on the floor with one boot on, Amy began to cry and Meg to reason with her. When Laurie called from below and the two girls hurried down, leaving their sister wailing. For now and then she forgot her grown-up ways and acted like a spoiled child. Just as the party was setting out, Amy called over the banisters in a threatening tone. You'll be sorry for this, Joe March. See if you ain't. Fiddlesticks, returned Joe, slamming the door. They had a charming time, for the seven castles of the Diamond Lake was as brilliant and wonderful as heart could wish. But in spite of the comical red imps, sparkling elves, and the gorgeous princes and princesses, Joe's pleasure had a drop of bitterness in it. The fairy queen's yellow curls reminded her of Amy, and between the acts she amused herself with wondering what her sister would do to make her sorry for it. She and Amy had had many lively skirmishes in the course of their lives, for both had quick tempers and were apt to be violent when fairly roused. Amy teased Joe, and Joe irritated Amy, and semi-occasional explosions occurred, of which both were much ashamed afterward. 
Although the oldest, Joe had the least self-control and had hard times trying to curb the fiery spirit which was continually getting her into trouble. Her anger never lasted long, and having humbly confessed her fault, she sincerely repented and tried to do better. Her sisters used to say that they rather liked to get Joe into a fury because she was such an angel afterward. Poor Joe tried desperately to be good, but her bosom enemy was always ready to flame up and defeat her, and it took years of patient effort to subdue it. When they got home, they found Amy reading in the parlour. She assumed an injured air as they came in, never lifted her eyes from her book or asked a single question. Perhaps curiosity might have conquered resentment if Beth had not been there to inquire and receive a glowing description of the play. On going up to put away her best hat, Joe's first look was toward the bureau. For in their last quarrel, Amy had soothed her feelings by turning Joe's top drawer upside down on the floor. Everything was in its place, however, and after a hasty glance into her various closets, bags and boxes, Joe decided that Amy had forgiven and forgotten her wrongs. There, Joe was mistaken, for next day she made a discovery which produced a tempest. Meg, Beth and Amy were sitting together late in the afternoon when Joe burst into the room, looking excited and demanding breathlessly. Has anyone taken my book? Meg and Beth said no at once and looked surprised. Amy poked the fire and said nothing. Joe saw her colour rise and was down upon her in a minute. Amy, you've got it. No, I haven't. You know where it is then? No, I don't. That's a fib, cried Joe, taking her by the shoulders and looking fierce enough to frighten a much braver child than Amy. It isn't. I haven't got it. Don't know where it is now and don't care. You know something about it and you better tell once or I'll make you. And Joe gave her a slight shake. Scold as much as you like. You'll never see your silly old book again, cried Amy, getting excited in her turn. Why not? I burned it up. What? My little book I was so fond of and worked over and meant to finish before father got home? Have you really burned it? said Joe, turning very pale, while her eyes kindled and her hands clutched Amy nervously. Yes, I did. I told you I'd make you pay for being so cross yesterday, and I have, so. Amy got no further, for Joe's hot temper mastered her, and she shook Amy till her teeth chattered in her head, crying in a passion of grief and anger. You wicked, wicked girl. I never can write it again, and I'll never forgive you as long as I live. Meg flew to rescue Amy, and Beth to pacify Joe. But Joe was quite beside herself, and with a parting box in her sister's ear, she rushed out of the room up to the old sofa in the garret, and finished her fight alone. The storm cleared up below, for Mrs. March came home, and having heard the story, soon brought Amy to a sense of the wrong she had done her sister. Joe's book was the pride of her heart, and was regarded by her family as a literary sprout of great promise. It was only half a dozen little fairy tales, but Joe had worked over them patiently, putting her whole heart into her work, hoping to make it something good enough to print. She had just copied them with great care and had destroyed the old manuscript so that Amy's bonfire had consumed the loving work of several years. It seemed a small loss to others, but to Joe it was a dreadful calamity and she felt that it could never be made up to her. Beth mourned as for a departed kitten and Meg refused to defend her pet. 
Mrs. March looked grave and grieved, and Amy felt that no one would love her till she had asked pardon for the act, which she now regretted more than any of them. When the tea bell rang, Joe appeared, looking so grim and unapproachable, that it took all Amy's courage to say meekly, Please forgive me, Joe. I'm very, very sorry. I never shall forgive you, was Joe's stern answer, and from that moment she ignored Amy entirely. No one spoke with great trouble, not even Mrs. March, for all had learned by experience that when Joe was in that mood, words were wasted, and the wisest course was to wait till some little accident, or her own generous nature, softened Joe's resentment and healed the breach. It was not a happy evening, for though they sewed as usual while their mother read aloud from Bremer, Scott, or Edgeworth, something was wanting, and the sweet home peace was disturbed. They felt this most when singing time came, for Beth could only play, Joe stood dumb as a stone, and Amy broke down, so Meg and Mother sang alone. But in spite of their efforts to be as cheery as the larks, the flute-like voices did not seem to chord as well as usual, and all felt out of tune. As Joe received her goodnight kiss, Mrs. March whispered gently, My dear, don't let the sun go down upon your anger. Forgive each other help each other, and begin again tomorrow. Joe wanted to lay her head down on that motherly bosom and cry her grief and anger all away, but tears were an unmanly weakness, and she felt so deeply injured that she really couldn't quite forgive yet. So she winked hard, shook her head, and said gruffly, because Amy was listening, it was an abominable thing, and she doesn't deserve to be forgiven. With that, she marched off to bed, and there was no merry or confidential gossip that night. Amy was much offended that her overtures of peace had been repulsed, and began to wish that she had not humbled herself to feel more injured than ever, and to plume herself on her superior virtue in a way which was particularly exasperating. Joe still looked like a thundercloud, and nothing went well all day. It was bitter cold in the morning. She dropped her precious turnover in the gutter. Aunt March had an attack of the fidgets. Meg was sensitive. Beth would looked grieved and wistful when she got home and Amy kept making remarks about people who were always talking about being good, and yet wouldn't even try when other people set them a virtuous example. Everybody is so hateful. I'll ask Laurie to go skating. He's always kind and jolly, and will put me to rights, I know, said Joe to herself. And off she went. Amy heard the clash of skates and looked out with an impatient exclamation. There, she promised I should go next time, for this is the last ice we shall have but it's no use to ask such a cross-patch to take me. Don't say that. You were very naughty, and it is hard to forgive the loss of her precious little book. But I think she might do it now, and I guess she will, if you try her the right minute, said Meg. Go after them. Don't say anything till Joe has got good nature with Laurie, then take a quiet minute and just kiss her, or do some kind thing, and I'm sure she'll be friends again with all her heart. I'll try, said Amy the advice suited her, and after a flurry to get ready she ran after the friends who were just disappearing over the hill. It was not far to the river, but both were ready before Amy reached them. Joe saw her coming and turned her back. Laurie did not see, for he was carefully skating along the shore, sounding the ice, for a warm spell had preceded the cold snap. I'll go on to the first bend and see if it's all right before we begin to race, Amy heard him say. 
as he shot away, looking like a young Russian in his fur-trimmed coat and cap. Joe heard Amy panting after her run, stamping her feet and blowing on her fingers as she tried to put her skates on, but Joe never turned and went slowly zigzagging down the river, taking a bitter, unhappy sort of satisfaction in her sister's troubles. She had cherished her anger till it grew strong and took possession of her, as evil thoughts and feelings always do unless cast out at once. As Laurie turned the bend, he shouted back, Keep near the shore, it isn't safe in the middle. Joe heard, but Amy was struggling to her feet and did not catch a word. Joe glanced over her shoulder, and the little demon she was harboring said in her ear, No matter whether she heard or not, let her take care of herself. Laurie had vanished round the bend, Joe was just at the turn, and Amy, far behind, striking out toward the smoother ice in the middle of the river. For a minute, Joe stood still with a strange feeling in her heart. Then she resolved to go on. But something held and turned her round, just in time to see Amy throw up her hands and go down, with a sudden crash of rotten ice, a splash of water, and a cry that made Joe's heart stand still with fear. She tried to call to Laurie, but her voice was gone. She tried to rush forward, but her feet seemed to have no strength in them, and for a second she could only stand motionless, staring with a terror-stricken face at the little blue hood above the black water. Something rushed swiftly past her, and Laurie's voice cried out, Bring a rail, quick, quick. How she did it she never knew, but for the next few minutes she worked as if possessed, blindly obeying Laurie who was quite self-possessed, and lying flat held Amy up by his arm and hockey stick till Joe dragged a rail from the fence, and together they got the child out, more frightened than hurt. Now then, we must walk her home as fast as we can, pile our things on her while I get off these confounded skates, cried Laurie, wrapping his coat round Amy and tugging away at the straps which never seemed so intricate before. Shivering, dripping and crying, they got Amy home, and after an exciting time of it, she fell asleep, rolled in blankets before a hot fire. During the bustle, Joe had scarcely spoken, but flown about, looking pale and wild, with her things half off, her dress torn and her hands cut and bruised by ice and rails and refractory buckles. When Amy was comfortably asleep, the house quiet, and Mrs. March sitting by the bed, she called Joe to her and began to bind up the hurt hands. Are you sure she's safe? whispered Joe, looking remorsefully at the golden head, which might have been swept away from her sight forever under the treacherous ice. Quite safe, dear. She's not hurt and won't even take cold, I think. You were sensible in covering and getting her home quickly, replied her mother cheerfully. Laurie did it all. I only let her go. Mother, if she should die, it would be all my fault. And Joe dropped down beside the bed in a passion of penitent tears telling all that had happened, bitterly condemning her hardness of heart, and sobbing out her gratitude for being spared the heavy punishment which might have come upon her. It's my dreadful temper. I try to cure it, I think I have, and then it breaks out worse than ever. Oh, mother, what shall I do? What shall I do? cried Joe in despair. Watch and pray, dear. Never get tired of trying, and never think it is impossible to conquer your fault, said Mrs. March drawing the blowsy head to her shoulder and kissing the wet cheek so tenderly that Joe cried even harder. You don't know. You can't guess how bad it is. 
It seems as if I could do anything when I'm in a passion. I get so savage I could hurt anyone and enjoy it. I'm afraid I shall do something dreadful someday and spoil my life and make everybody hate me. Oh, mother, help me. Do help me. I will, my child, I will. Don't cry so bitterly, but remember this day and resolve with all your heart that you will never know another like it. Joe dear, we all have our temptations, some far greater than yours, and it often takes us our whole lives to conquer them. You think your temper is the worst in the world, but mine used to be just like it. Yours, mother? Why, you're never angry. And for the moment, Joe forgot remorse and surprise. I've been trying to cure it for forty years, and I've only succeeded in controlling it. I'm angry nearly every day of my life, Joe, but I've learned not to show it. And I still hope to learn not to feel it, though it may take me another forty years to do so. The patience and the humility of the face she loved so well was a better lesson to Joe than the wisest lecture, the sharpest reproof. She felt comforted at once by the sympathy and confidence given her. The knowledge that her mother had a fault like hers and tried to mend it made her own easier to bear and strengthened her resolution to cure it, though forty years seemed rather a long time to watch and pray to a girl of fifteen. Mother, are you angry when you fold your lips tight together and go out of the room sometimes, when Aunt March scolds or people worry you? asked Joe, feeling nearer and dearer to her mother than ever before. Yes. I've learned to check the hasty words that rise to my lips, and when I feel that they may mean to break out against my will, I just go away for a minute and give myself a little shake for being so weak and wicked, answered Mrs. March, with a sigh and a smile, as she smoothed and fastened up Joe's disheveled hair. How did you learn to keep still? That is what troubles me, for the sharp words fly out before I know what I'm about, and the more I say, the worse I get till it's a pleasure to hurt people's feelings and say dreadful things. Tell me how you do it, Marmy Dare. My good mother used to help me. As you do us, interrupted Joe with a grateful kiss. But I lost her when I was a little older than you are, and for years had to struggle on alone, for I was too proud to confess my weakness to anyone else. I had a hard time, Joe, and shed a good many bitter tears over my failures, for in spite of my efforts I never seemed to get on. And your father came, and I was so happy that I found it easy to be good. But by and by, when I had four little daughters round me and we were poor, then the old trouble began again, for I'm not patient by nature, and it tried me very much to see my children wanting anything. Poor mother. What helped you then? Your father, Joe. He never loses patience, never doubts or complains, but always hopes and works and waits so cheerfully that one is ashamed to do otherwise before him. He helped and comforted me, and showed me that I must try to practice all the virtues I would have my little girls possess, for I was their example. It was easier to try for your sakes than for my own. A startled or surprised look from one of you, when I spoke sharply, rebuked me more than any words could have done, and the love, respect, and confidence of my children was the sweetest reward I could receive for my efforts to be the woman I would have them copy. Oh, mother, if I'm ever as half as good as you, I shall be satisfied, cried Joe, much touched. I hope you would be a great deal better, dear, but you must keep watch over your bosom enemy, as father calls it, or it may sadden, if not spoil your life. 
you've had a warning. Remember it, and try with heart and soul to master this quick temper before it brings you greater sorrow and regret than you have known today. I will try, Mother. I truly will. But you must help me, remind me, and keep me from flying out. I used to see Father sometimes put his finger on his lips and look at you with a very kind but sober face. And you always folded your lips tight and went away. Was he reminding you then? asked Joe softly. Yes. I asked him to help me so, and he never forgot it. But saved me from many a sharp word by that little gesture and kind look. Joe saw that her mother's eyes filled and her lips trembled as she spoke, and fearing that she had said too much, she whispered anxiously, Was it wrong to watch you and to speak of it? I didn't mean to be rude, but it's comfortable to say all I think to you and feel so safe and happy here. My Joe, you may say anything to your mother, for it is my greatest happiness and pride to feel that my girls confide in me and know how much I love them. I thought I'd grieved you. No, dear. But speaking of father reminded me how much I miss him, how much I owe him, and how faithfully I should watch and work to keep his little daughter safe and good for him. Yet you told him to go, mother, and didn't cry when he went, and never complain now, or seem as if you needed any help, said Joe, wondering. I gave my best to the country I love, and kept my tears till he was gone. Why should I complain when we both have merely done our duty, and will surely be the happier for it in the end? If I don't seem to need help, it is because I have a better friend, even than father, to comfort and sustain me. My child, the troubles and temptations of your life are beginning, and may be many, but you can overcome and outlive them all if you learn to feel the strength and tenderness of your heavenly father as you do that of your earthly one. The more you love and trust him, the nearer you will feel to him, and the less you will depend on human power and wisdom. His love and care never tire or change, can never be taken from you, and may become the source of lifelong peace, happiness, and strength. Believe this heartily, and go to God with all your little cares and hopes and sins and sorrows, as freely and confidingly as you come to your mother. Joe's only answer was to hold her mother close, and in the silence which followed, the sincerest prayer she had ever prayed left her heart without words. For in that sad yet happy hour, she had learned not only the bitterness of remorse and despair, but the sweetness of self-denial and self-control, and led by her mother's hand, she had drawn nearer to the friend who always welcomes every child with a love stronger than that of any father, tenderer than that of any mother. Amy stirred and sighed in her sleep, and as if eager to begin at once to mend her fault, Joel looked up with an expression on her face which it had never worn before. I let the sun go down on my anger. I wouldn't forgive her, and today, if it hadn't been for Laurie, it might have been too late. How could I be so wicked, said Joe, half aloud, as she leaned over her sister softly, stroking the wet hair scattered on the pillow. As if she heard, Amy opened her eyes and held out her arms, with a smile that went straight to Joe's heart. Neither said a word, but they hugged one another close, in spite of the blankets. And everything was forgiven and forgotten in one hearty kiss. Chapter 9 Meg Goes to Vanity Fair I do think it was the most fortunate thing in the world that those children should have the measles just now, said Meg one April day, as she stood packing the go-abroady trunk in her room 
surrounded by your sisters. And so nice of Annie Moffat not to forget her promise. A whole fortnight of fun will be regularly splendid, replied Joe, looking like a windmill as she folded skirts with her long arms. And such lovely weather, I'm so glad of that, added Beth, tidily sorting neck and hair ribbons in her best box, lent for the great occasion. I wish I was going to have a fine time and wear all these nice things, said Amy, with her mouth full of pins, as she artistically replenished her sister's cushion. I wish you were all going, but as you can't, I shall keep my adventures to tell you when I come back. I'm sure it's the least I can do when you've been so kind, lending me things and helping me get ready, said Meg, glancing round the room at every simple outfit which seemed nearly perfect in their eyes. What did Mother give you out of the treasure box? asked Amy, who had not been present at the opening of a certain cedar chest, in which Mrs. March kept a few relics of past splendor as gifts for her girls when the proper time came. A pair of silk stockings, that pretty curved fan, and a lovely blue sash. I wanted the violet silk, but there isn't time to make it over, so I must be contented with my old tarlatan. It will look nice over my new muslin skirt, and the sash will set it off beautifully. I wish I hadn't smashed my coral bracelet, for you might have had it, said Joe, who loves to give and lend, but whose possessions were usually too dilapidated to be of much use. There's a lovely old-fashioned pearl set in the treasure chest, but Mother said real flowers were the prettiest ornament for a young girl, and Laurie promised to send me all I want, replied Meg. Now, let me see. There's my new grey walking suit. Just curl up the feather in my hat, Beth. Then my poplin for Sunday, and the small party. It looks heavy for spring, doesn't it? The violet silk would be so nice. Oh dear. Never mind, you've got the tarlatan for the big party, and you always look like an angel in white, said Amy, brooding over the little store of finery in which her soul delighted. It isn't low-necked and it doesn't sweep enough, but it will have to do. My blue house dress looks so well turned and freshly trimmed that I feel as if I've got a new one. My silk sack isn't a bit of the fashion, and my bonnet doesn't look like Sally's. I didn't like to say anything, but I was sadly disappointed in my umbrella. I told Mother black with a white handle, but she forgot and bought a green one with a yellowish handle. It's strong and neat, so I ought not to complain, but I know I shall feel ashamed of it beside Annie's silk one with a gold top, sighed Meg, surveying the little umbrella with great disfavor. Change it, advised Joe. I won't be so silly or hurt Marmy's feelings when she took so much pains to get my things. It's a nonsensical notion of mine, and I'm not going to give up to it. My silk stockings and two pairs of new gloves are my comfort. You are a dare to lend me yours, Joe. I feel so rich and sort of elegant with two new pairs, and the old ones cleaned up for common. And Meg took a refreshing peep at her glove box. Annie Moffat has blue and pink bows on her nightcaps. Would you put some on mine, she asked, as Beth brought up a pile of snowy muslins, fresh from Hannah's hands. No, I wouldn't, for the smart caps won't match the plain gowns without any trimming on them. Poor folks shouldn't rig, said Joe decidedly. I wonder if I shall ever be happy enough to have real lace on my clothes and bows on my caps, said Meg impatiently. You said the other day that you'd be perfectly happy if you could only go to Annie Moffat's, observed Beth in her quiet way. So I did. Well, I am happy, and I won't fret. But it does seem as if the more one gets, the more one wants, doesn't it? 
There now, the trays are ready and everything in but my ball dress, which I shall leave for mother to pack, said Meg, cheering up. As she glanced from the half-filled trunk to the many times pressed and mended white tarlatan, which she called her ball dress with an important air. The next day was fine, and Meg departed in style for a fortnight of novelty and pleasure. Mrs. March had consented to the visit rather reluctantly, fearing that Margaret would come back more discontented than she went. But she begged so hard, and Sally had promised to take good care of her, and a little pleasure seemed so delightful after a winter of irksome work, that the mother yielded, and the daughter went to her first taste of fashionable life. The Moffats were very fashionable, and simple Meg was rather daunted at first by the splendour of the house and the elegance of its occupants. But they were kindly people, in spite of the frivolous life they led, and soon put their guest at her ease. Perhaps Meg felt, without understanding why, that they were not particularly cultivated or intelligent people, and that all their gilding could not quite conceal the ordinary material of which they were made. It certainly was agreeable to fare sumptuously, drive in a fine carriage, wear her best frock every day, and do nothing but enjoy herself. It suited her exactly, and soon she began to imitate the manners and conversation of those about her, to put on little airs and graces, use French phrases, crimp her hair, take in her dresses, and talk about the fashions as well as she could. The more she saw of Annie Moffat's pretty things, the more she envied her and sighed to be rich. Home now looked bare and dismal as she thought of it. Work grew harder than ever and she felt that she was a very destitute and much injured girl, in spite of the new gloves and silk stockings. She had not much time for repining, however, for the three young girls were busily employed in having a good time. They shopped, walked, rode, and called all day, went to theatres and operas or frolicked at home in the evening, for Annie had many friends and knew how to entertain them. Her older sisters were very fine young ladies, and one was engaged, which was extremely interesting and romantic, Meg thought. Mr. Moffat was a fat, jolly old gentleman who knew her father, and Mrs. Moffat, a fat, jolly old lady, who took as great a fancy to Meg as her daughter had done. Everyone petted her, and Daisy, as they called her, was in a fair way to have her head turned. When the evening for the small party came, she found that the poplin wouldn't do at all, for the other girls were putting on thin dresses and making themselves very fine indeed. So out came the tarlatan, looking older, limper, and shabbier than ever, beside Sally's crisp new one. Meg saw the girls glance at it, and then at one another, and her cheeks began to burn, for with all her gentleness she was very proud. No one said a word about it, but Sally offered to dress her hair, and Annie to tie her sash, and Belle, the engaged sister, praised her arms. But in their kindness Meg saw only pity for her poverty, and her heart felt very heavy as she stood by herself, while the others laughed, chattered, and flew about like gauzy butterflies. The hard, bitter feeling was getting pretty bad when the maid brought in a box of flowers. Before she could speak, Annie had the cover off, and all were exclaiming at the lovely roses, heath, and fern within. It's for Belle, of course. George always sends her some, but these are altogether ravishing, cried Annie with a great sniff. They are for Miss March the man said. And here's a note, put in the maid, holding it to Meg. What fun! Who are they from? Didn't know you had a lover, cried the girls, fluttering about Meg in a high state of curiosity and surprise. The note is from Mother, and the flowers from Laurie, said Meg simply, 
yet much gratified that he had not forgotten her. Oh, indeed, said Annie with a funny look, as Meg slipped the note into her pocket as a sort of talisman against envy, vanity, and false pride. For the few loving words had done her good, and the flowers cheered her up by their beauty. Feeling almost happy again, she laid by a few ferns and roses for herself, and quickly made up the rest in dainty bouquets for the breasts, hair, or skirts of her friends, offering them so prettily that Clara, the elder sister, told her she was the sweetest little thing she ever saw, and they looked quite charmed with her small attention. Somehow the kind act finished her despondency, and when all the rest went to show themselves to Mrs. Moffat, she saw a happy, bright-eyed face in the mirror. As she laid her ferns against her rippling hair and fastened the rose in the dress, that didn't strike her as so very shabby now. She enjoyed herself very much that evening, for she danced to her heart's content. Everyone was very kind, and she had three compliments. Annie made her sing, and someone said she had a remarkably fine voice. Major Lincoln asked who the fresh little girl with the beautiful eyes was, and Mr. Moffat insisted on dancing with her because she didn't waddle and had some spring in her, as he gracefully expressed it. So altogether she had a very nice time, till she overheard a bit of a conversation which disturbed her extremely. She was sitting just inside the conservatory, waiting for her partner to bring her an ice, when she heard a voice ask on the other side of the flowery wall, How old is he? Sixteen or seventeen, I should say, replied another voice. It would be a grand thing for one of those girls, wouldn't it? Sally says they're very intimate now, and the old man quite dotes on them. Mrs. M has made her plans, I dare say, and will play her cards well, early as it is. The girl evidently doesn't think of it yet, said Mrs. Moffat. She told that fib about her mamma, as if she did know, and coloured up when the flowers came quite prettily. Poor thing. She'd be so nice if she was only got up in style. Do you think she'd be offended if we offered to lend her a dress for Thursday? asked another voice. She's proud, but I don't think she'd mind, for that dowdy tarlatan is all she's got. She may tear it tonight, and that would be a good excuse for offering a decent one. Here, Meg's partner appeared to find her looking much flushed and rather agitated. She was proud, and her pride was useful just then, for it helped her hide her mortification, anger, and disgust at what she just heard. For, innocent and unsuspicious as she was, she could not help understanding the gossip of her friends. She tried to forget it, but could not, and kept repeating to herself, Mrs. M has made her plans, that fib about her mamma and dowdy tarlatan, till she was ready to cry and rush home to tell her troubles and ask for advice. As this was impossible, she did her best to seem cheerful and, being rather excited, she succeeded so well that no one dreamed what an effort she was making. She was very glad when it was all over and she was quiet in her bed, where she could think and wonder and fume till her head ached and her hot cheeks were cooled by a few natural tears. Those foolish yet well-meant words had opened a new world to Meg, and much disturbed the peace of the old one, in which, till now, she had lived as happily as a child. Her innocent friendship with Laurie was spoiled by the silly speeches she had overheard. Her faith in her mother was a little shaken by the worldly plans attributed to her by Mrs. Moffat, who judged others by herself and the sensible resolution to be contented with a simple wardrobe which suited a poor man's daughter was weakened by the unnecessary pity of girls who thought a shabby dress one of the greatest calamities under heaven. Good night.